0: There, freedom lovers. This is the Freedom Media Network. I am your host, Kurt Mercadante. I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Cultivate Elevate. Perhaps you listened, and by the way, if you didn't listen, go back. Listen to the series of episodes we did interviews with Matt, the founder of Cultivate Elevate, and in there, you will learn about their USDA organic products, mushroom powders, ginkgo biloba, shilajit. I rely on their products each and every day to keep me healthy to help boost my mood, to help with gut health. Protect me against EMF radiation. And you can get 10% off their products. Here's two ways to do it. Go to Mercadante.life. There's a link there. You can click on that link, go shop, and you get a 10% discount. Or you can go straight to cultivateelevate.com and use the code kurt 15 curt C-U-R-T-1-5, to get your 10% discount. I rely on Cultivate Elevate every day. They're organic products, they're natural products. I use their six mix mushroom powder every morning, every afternoon. I have some tea with their ginkgo biloba powder. I take 10 drops of shilajot every single day, especially when I'm going hiking. It's wonderful here at altitude. Cultivateelevate.com, go to Mercadante.life, follow the link, get 10% off. Carrie, this is the third time I've had the pleasure of having you on one of my podcasts, the second time on the Freedom Media Network. We we took a year off of the Freedom Media Network because we were traveling and had no internet. And so we've restarted it up. So I'm so happy to have you on the program again. Thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, I'm great. Glad to be with you, Kurt. It's great to see you.
0: And you know, the first time we had you on, it, it was interesting. I you you had the book unschooled raising yeah.
1: curious, well educated children outside the conventional classroom, which uh, has gained a lot more interest over the past nearly two years, uh, even though it came out in the spring of 2019.
0: Yes, it, and it's and and last year. Uh, when we were, we were talking in the midst of, well, not last year, I guess it was two years ago, 2020 in the midst of all the craziness and the calls for bans on homeschooling and, Mm -hmm. um, but when I read Unschooled, I read it, uh, we were in traveling and living our freedom lifestyle. We were actually in Italy, and I remember sitting there reading the book, and then we had our interview right after that, and we were there with a family who was considering unschooling, and I said, you got to read this book. So, it had a huge influence on them, and right now, they're in New Zealand, and they are very freedom-loving people in a country that has gone the opposite direction, so, so your book has paid dividends with them because now they're unschooling and homeschooling in a, in a small island nation that is, that is going in the opposite direction of freedom. So I want to thank you so much for the work you do, for the books you've written and just the ongoing, if you go to org, you find all your great articles there. It's, it's had a huge impact on me and people around us.
1: Oh, thanks Kurt. I really appreciate the kind words.
0: Today, we're, we're here to talk about a new book that you have called A is for Abundance. We talked about that in the intro. A is for Abundance, the ABCs of capitalism. And I'd love to focus first on, and, and it's it's uh, obviously the the first, they're not chapters, but the first piece is A is for Abundance, and it goes A through Z. But that word abundance, you know, I find if you ask 10 people what abundance means to them, you might get. 10 different answers, what does abundance mean to you?
1: Yeah. So this little children's picture book, I don't know if your audience can see it, A's for abundance. Really, um, um, my colleague and friend, Gabriel Valles, uh, who did all the heavy lifting with the illustrations, which are just stunning. So, um, you know, he gets most of the credit for this lovely little book. Um, but yeah, it goes through the alphabet with little rhymes that celebrate free markets and free minds and just the ways in which capitalism creates um, enormous abundance for all of us. You know, if we think about a hundred years ago, um, the most the wealthiest people, uh, or would be living like paupers today, right? Like the, the <laughs> poorest people today in our country live so much better than the Rockefellers did, for example, um, at the turn of the 20th century. And that all has to do with capitalism and free markets uh, and free enterprise and private property and all of the, the, the pieces that go into um, supporting, you know, a capitalist structure. And so I think that's really what I wanted to do in this book was to celebrate um, the ways in which capitalism has created abundance, that it is improved, um, human flourishing, it's improved lifespan, it's improved quality of life for people around the world. We've lifted a billion people out of poverty um, in just a few decades, of course now sliding backwards due to coronavirus policy, sadly, in many cases. But overall, you know, this is this is free markets that have done this. Um, and it's avoiding central planners. And it's uh, encouraging innovation and entrepreneurship. And I think, particularly in our society now, and certainly in classrooms across the country, uh, there is a demonization of capitalism and an elevation of socialism and collectivism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really what triggered my interest in writing something like this. Um, several years ago, when we were allowed to go into libraries before <laughs> COVID hit, I Uh, Saw in my local library, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, a book called A is for Activist, which is Mm -hmm. a picture book, a children's book that is widely popular. It's in every public library. It's in almost all public school classrooms. Um, And it celebrates collectivism and it talks about how we need to create co-ops. That, for example, for C, create co-ops uh, and communal living, and uh, demonizes what they call corporate vultures, and you know, sort of this 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 real negative view um, of society and real um, and, and of and of enterprise and an elevation in their case of socialism. They talk about um, you know environmental justice and demonize fossil fuels and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. So I really wanted to provide a, an antidote to that.
0: So you mentioned the teaching of collectivism, right, in our schools. And um, there's a couple of ways I could go with this. I guess let's start with, you know, there's a lot of things that people see as indoctrination going on in schools. From what you mentioned, the A is for activists, collectivism, you know, certainly in the news, people are very upset about uh, critical race theory being taught, etc. But on the same token, I'm with you, that there's a lot of, quote unquote, freedom-loving people who want maybe Something on the other side, right? The the what was it? The 1789 project, is that what it was called?
1: 1776 We're, project. Said, the, okay,
0: yeah, I guess that would make the sense. The antidote to the
1: 1619, and interestingly, the 1619 project, which of course was the New York Times initiative, that has an associated curriculum uh, that's very anti-capitalist uh, in, in embedded in the curriculum materials and in and in the articles of that project as well. So. Yeah, I think it's really, you know, I'm all for a marketplace of ideas. I love that A is for Activist exists and books similar to that. And there are a whole host of them um, that are in, again, public libraries, public schools across the country. But there seems to be a dearth of um resources for celebrating capitalism and celebrating individualism and uh and individual liberty uh and so that's what you know we wanted to do with this book and i will say you know sort of the the gold standard and the real leader in this area is certainly Connor Boyack and the Tittle twins oh, sure. book series that are just phenomenal um so the more that we can offer parents who want to provide, you know, a different perspective, particularly if their children are in schools that are not in any way providing another perspective, then um, that we feel is a good thing.
0: Yeah, we had, we had Connor on back in 2020, I believe. I'd, I had the, the pleasure of meeting uh, Jen on his team who markets Tuttle Twins. Awesome. I, I went and spoke at uh, SPN in September down in Florida. <laughs> And so got to meet her and and we have all those books, actually not all of them because they they keep coming out with them. Um, But we, you know, those books are aimed and a lot of other, there's a lot of other resources out there, but like probably eight years old, nine, 10 and above your book is certainly aimed at a younger, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a bedtime storybook for what preschoolers, toddlers, is that kind of the age you have in mind for it?
1: Well, I will say that Connor is uh, always expanding, you know, his uh, resources and he does have a series of board books now for mm, okay. younger children. So that's wonderful. Yeah, I would say, you know, certainly um, adults could read this book to children of all ages. Uh, and certainly they'd want to help them kind of understand the concepts because there's a lot of economics in there and there's a lot of, um, you know, talk about free market. So I think that they would want to be able to kind of guide their their children through that. Um, but in terms of, you know, reading level for children, yeah, I think we're looking at kind of the uh, maybe, you know, four to eight, four to nine range. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you, you know, back real quick to our, the discussion of the free marketplace of ideas in schools. Um and, and certainly you're a homeschooling advocate, home education, self-education, unschooling, whatever you want to call it, uh, as, as we are. Do you feel that, for instance, A is for abundance, and there's A is for activist. Do you think books like that should be pushed by, uh, I'll call them authority figures, right? Teachers, government, whatever. You know, you have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, whatever, and a teacher is, they're impressionable, right? That, that's part of your programming. Do you think Not only A's for activists, but the 1619 Project, all that. Does A for Abundance and as well as those have a place in schools, or is it better kept as a parental? free marketplace of ideas. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
1: I guess my issue is with government run schools more broadly. Um, You know, I would love to see, you know, a completely privatized education market that like we have in other areas of our lives. For example, we don't have government run grocery stores and uh, eating and food are certainly basic needs. uh, And we have food stamps and other sorts of um voucher programs for people in need. And I and I see the same, you know, process working with education. Uh so that would sort of be my my kind of primary answer to that. And then let the private sector decide what kinds of books and materials they want in their schools and then families will be able to choose from among that assortment. Um, To the extent that we have government run schools, you know, I mean, I think it would be ideal to say that we have a balance of ideas in these um, in these schools, uh, but I think you know, to the extent there that these schools can really be uh, managed on the local level, which is less and less the case. Education is becoming increasingly centralized; uh, the federal government taking over a much greater and unconstitutional role in education. Um, It makes it, you know, much more difficult when you have much more centralization of curriculum and of, um, uh, you know, what happens in schools and back to kind of the 1776 versus 1619 project. You know, I when when president then President Trump announced his 1776 project and mandatory patriotic education and. Uh, public schools across the country. I wrote an article for Fee that said, if you don't want a Biden 1619 commission, you should oppose Trump's 1776 commission. In both cases, they are unconstitutional. The federal government has no role in education. It should be a state and local issue. And at the local level, parents can infiltrate school boards and influence you know, school policies and curriculum. And if their community thinks that a is for activists is the best book and there shouldn't be A's for abundance, fine, and on the flip side, Um, that would work too.
0: Yeah. It's, uh, it's so interesting now, you know, people, everything has become so political, Uh, you know, and, and we talk about cancel culture. We talk about that and people forget that a weapon you use against someone else, they forget that it can be used against you when the other people are in power. And so it's so interesting that you see that of, of, and, you know, I've, I've become kind of uh, a little side obsessions reading about China, or I don't know if you've, you've ever heard of Yonmi Park, a uh, North Korean defector who's been making the rounds and actually getting banned from YouTube, talking about what they do there. And, and one of the things they do, <laughs> I guess very effectively, but not in a good way in North Korea and China, is indoctrinate their students according to a history that portrays the United States as bad right and and i've seen some of what they do and 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 it's some of it isn't factually incorrect but it's how you teach it and you could probably say that you could say that about the 1776 project you could say that about a variety of things but it's like do we really want to go the route of authoritarian regimes in pushing these things because just like you said do you want a biden 1619 commission and um you know some people don't think about your opponents are going to use it against you just as effectively.
1: <laughs> right. And, you know, I think one of the things that we've certainly seen um, very starkly over the last now nearly two years is just what happens when we empower government um, and the ways in which government interferes with the private sector. You know, certainly in 2020, um, government officials and public health bureaucrats Mm -hmm. deciding uh which businesses were essential and which weren't and then we're just you know shutting down businesses and continuing today to decide for companies, you know, who you can employ and fire employees if they are you know, not complying with various public health directives or not allowing various customers into your uh, business because the government said so. Um, and, you know, I think it's a really um, dark time. And we need to remember that government involvement in the free market is not, you know, sort of, what we would think of a market economy, or you know, with the promise of capitalism, uh, and my book tries to get at that. I mean, it's it doesn't address COVID and policy specifically, but it does bring up you know cronyism and the ways in which government intervention can negatively impact the market. You know, for example, for B, it's boom bust. Uh, sometimes businesses are ahead of the pack, and sometimes they trail but no business should ever be too big to fail. Um, Really, you know, talking again about government bailouts as a a result of the financial crisis of 2008 and the ways in which, um, you know, government and taxpayers, you know, bailed out these businesses. Um, And that I think really has, Uh, negatively uh, influence people's perspective on capitalism. That's not capitalism, that's cronyism, that's government involvement. And we're seeing that, you know, increasingly today. So I'm hopeful, though, because in the book, I talk a lot about entrepreneurship and encouraging, um, you know, free labor market and looking at individual preferences and choices that uh, cannot be managed by a central planner. Um, I'm hoping that that kind of message can be attractive, particularly as um, more and more people have seen the damage done by government policy with respect to uh, private businesses and, and individual lives and livelihoods.
0: Yeah, and I, I love your focus in the book on the power of the individual, uh, and also cooperation, right? Yeah. It's It's not coercion, it's cooperation between individuals. And you know, one one of my favorite books, uh, you know, and, and I've read it five times now, and every time I read it, it becomes more and more like a nonfiction book, is Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, and the interest <laughs> the interesting thing in Atlas Shrugged is someone could look at Galt's Gulch and say, well, that's a collectivist socialist little community um but really it's based on cooperation rather than a central planning authority and so when a lot of people hear individualism they think selfish everyone's out to screw one another and all this but when you have cooperation it's it's almost like you get what some of the utopian collectivists are looking for right it's kind of an it, it's it's kind of an odd Circumstance, right?
1: (laughs) Well, the root, I mean, this is what makes capitalism really the only moral economic system. Um, It's based completely on consent and voluntarism. Um, So that, you know, you are entering into negotiations entirely voluntarily um you engage in free trade through you know voluntary transactions and that you believe will lead to mutual gain and that's what happens through trade um you know everything is through um preferences and consent you know you can decide to shop at one business and not in another for a whole host of reasons um but the point is that it stops with you as the consumer, that you're deciding. Uh, no one's coercing you to do something. Um, so that is what I think makes capitalism so superior. And it's not perfect, but it's certainly the most perfect system that we have for um, improving human flourishing and really lifting uh, the living standards worldwide.
0: When you talk about individual, individualism and you talk about true capitalism, not crony capitalism, Uh, and the lack of coercion in a truly capitalist system. And a lot of people now point to capitalism and it's broken and it's not working, Um, especially over the last two years. I mean, certainly there's been government coercion when it comes to where you can go, certain passes you need to be able to participate in public and all those things. But as someone who was in, who, who worked in what, what, the former president called the swamp which is which is one thing i think he got right there is a swamp but but and where i want to go with this but over the last 2 years one thing that that really was interesting to me was seeing uh quote unquote free market minded libertarians almost replacing the 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 state with corporations as this uh, well, because it's private, it's somehow better and we're going to worship. And so anything, any technology that corporations produce is there for good. But, but, you know, I was in the advertising world and when you talk about individualism and we have a choice and you talk about empowerment of the individual in a system in which we have crony capitalism, but regulatory capture and and perhaps we see this, not perhaps, I think we really see it in healthcare, where, um, and, and forget even the current debate over vaccines and those types of things, but you see people becoming increasingly reliant on a warning label or a, or a side effect label or the government saying, this is safe. Now, as someone who participated in the charade in which I worked for trade associations in which we would buy the scientists, right? You would find a scientist who you knew was going to produce a study that you liked. The other side would do the same thing. And so now people say, trust the science. Where is the, Where does the responsibility come forth when people, like right now you see what I think is junk science, but it's endorsed by the government, pushed by corporations and you, you, and you have regulatory capture from the unions and the schools and you have them like this, I guess, where does that, where's that breaking point of responsibility for the consumer, but also, you know, to break up, uh, listen, corporations can do whatever they want. I can watch an ad and say, that's BS. Right. But you almost have this seal of approval of the government in which people say, no, it's like mindless people saying it's good. It's good. It's good. And then you have some libertarian saying it's good because it's a corporation, but it's, it's not, really, isn't it?
1: Right. I mean, I think that's the problem. We have, you know, the CDC issuing their quote-unquote recommendations, but then they become codified in policies, um, you know, certainly in municipal policy, but more and more in private businesses because private businesses worry about um, litigation, about going against the grain. And so even though these are just recommendations or guidelines being issued from government bureaucrats, uh, in this case, the CDC in Atlanta, Um, they still really impact individual lives and livelihoods, uh, I would argue, in a negative way. You know, I I think that's where you're right. We have to reduce the size and scope of government and really weaken the power of these agencies um, that have, grown and amassed tremendous influence over individual people's lives you know i will say it's interesting um last summer when uh, my city for you know a a blink of an eye allowed us to not wear our masks uh (laughs) there it was just a few week period where that was the case but there were still some businesses in my city that had signs on their door asking you know People to continue to wear masks. Um, And you know, you as a consumer can decide whether or not to go to that business. If the benefit to you of putting, of of, walking into that store uh, exceeds the cost to you of putting on a mask, you can make that decision yourself. Um, I think the trouble is when these sort of recommendations or some group's individual preferences end up influencing all of public policy and affecting everyone's lives.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, you know, the number one question and, and, um, and we've discussed this before, you know, when you ask, um, when, when someone asks you, oh, where do your kids go to school? And you say, oh, we homeschool or, or God forbid you say we unschool, which they don't, they don't understand. Right. The, The number one question is, well, what about the socialization? And in your book, Unschooled, you write about the, the difficulty in overcoming some of that programming and, and I, you write about it, it becomes a fabric of a local society from the Friday night lights and the football games, and it much of it has little to do. I mean, when we told relatives that we're oh, we're going to homeschool, well, what about prom? And, and and some of that was coming from people who didn't even get asked to prom. They were miserable in high school, but it becomes such that, so when I hear socialization, but that's taken on such a bigger meaning over the last two years. Now when I hear socialization, I hear almost conformity, mm. and you see people going in that direction on both sides, where it's like, yeah, you know what? I don't really support the 1776 project, but you have socialization on the right, where it's like, well, you hate America. You know, and, and, but by the same token, you know, I'm a, in my book, I read about that people are often usually motivated more by uh, pain than they are by mm-hmm. the pursuit of happiness. And I, is it true? Do you, do you think this over the last two years that some of that conformity and socialization and conditioning and programming of you got to send your, per, your kid to a, "Quote unquote mainstream school, whether that's private or or government, is has been overcome by the pain of my kids got to wear a mask. My kids got to get a jab. My kids got to listen to indoctrination. Is is that kind of do you, do you see maybe that that is the cure for some of it? Is the pain caused by the government schools themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think we're, we're we, and I think we talked about this a little bit too in previous episodes, but I think we're in a moment of education transformation for sure brought on by COVID policy where parents are back in the driver's seat and now are demanding and selecting various schooling alternatives for their kids, including homeschooling. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I found really um, shocking, again, over the past couple of years is... Uh, just the ways in which people want to be led, and maybe this does have something to do with the conformity and obedience that is uh, programmed and conditioned into us when we go through thirteen years of government schooling. Uh, and this is what I write a lot about in the beginning of beginning pages of unschool that we become conditioned to follow uh, and to follow orders and to um, obey authority, and and I think we're kind of seeing that now manifesting in our larger society. And, you know, I'm I'm shocked. Um, in various places where uh, we spent a lot of our time, for example, in in Vermont and the governor resisted um, recently imposing a a statewide mask mandate. Mm. Uh, And this caused outrage by a lot of um, businesses and municipalities that said, well, you know, how can we be expected to make these decisions ourselves? And I thought how can you not (laughs) you know why on earth would you want you know some king uh in a in a capital um you know making decisions for you and for your life and your children and your business Uh, these are choices that you need to make and i think that that again goes back to this to this um creeping sense of collectivism that has been invading you know certainly our our schools and and communities across the country over the last decade or two and accelerating more recently uh, and that's why we need to go back to really looking at the principles of for free society. And that is limited government, um, free markets um, and individual liberty.
0: It, it's funny, uh, you know, when last time we spoke, we were living in Charleston, South Carolina. And when they did the mask mandate, uh, it was clear and I talked to some folks that businesses actually lobbied for it for the same reasons that you just said, which was if we apply it on our own, we're going to make half our customers mad, but if we don't do it, so please force us to do it, and and we've also had people, you know, say, like, you know, we've been traveling free places, and they come visit, and it's like, but can we wear one if we want, and it's like, yeah. that's <laughs> called freedom of, you could right. do that, you could do that in any year, right. but it's like, people right. want to be, there, there's, uh, I'm a big fan of superhero movies, and There's so many lines in some of these that, like, where people, some people say they want freedom, but really they want order. And uh, in the movie The Avengers, Loki says, "You were made to be ruled, and I've come to like, you know, free you from your freedom." There's so many people who just they want to wake up in the morning and don't want to have to think and want to be told what to do. And so it's great to see that growth, especially in the schools, of people. Uh, breaking free, doing their own thing in a variety of ways. Some people are doing it. Uh, Here in Arizona, all of a sudden, there's an explosion. Well, maybe it was here before. I don't know. We just moved here, but uh, I'm seeing TV commercials and uh, billboards for these online learning resources that I've never seen before. So. Let,
1: yeah.
0: Let, yeah 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 what what's the yeah. growth been like in 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 all of this over the last 2 years
1: Well I think this is really the maybe the turning point or a certainly a hopeful sign as we see um parents who have been you know really shocked by what they saw in classrooms through remote schooling in 2020 and then continued school closures throughout the previous academic year um, pulling their kids out of school, you know, homeschooling doubling according to the U.S. Census Bureau last year in 2020 alone to now more than 11 percent of the overall K to 12 school age population, um, more than five and a half million students homeschooled in the U.S. and lots of other students fleeing public school districts uh, for private school or private virtual options, uh, micro schools, pandemic pods, and so on. Um, You know, we just see a continued exodus um, from particularly public schools in large urban districts. For example, Chicago, which, of course, is going through this week their own issue with the Chicago Teachers Teachers Union shutting down schools again, which will likely lead parents to Pull their kids out uh, of these schools, but Chicago public schools lost 14,000 students last year and another 10,000 students this year uh, out of the district. That's according to data from NPR. So parents are leaving. Uh, They're fed up with what they're seeing these government schools do. They're fed up with these unpredictable and ongoing school closures and the switch to remote schooling. They're tired in many cases of these coronavirus restrictions that are impacting, they're negatively impacting their children's lives. Uh, And so they're voting with their feet and increasingly um, being more vocal about these. They're kind of pushing for school choice policies that allow education dollars to follow students instead of funding these bureaucratic school systems um, that are really managed heavily by the teachers unions. So I think we are going to see uh, um, this continued and hopefully see this continued decentralization of education and really um, ongoing family empowerment when it comes to education choices for children. And I think this is also going to be buttressed by this explosion in education entrepreneurship. Um, I'm always Mm. eager to spotlight um, startups that are recognizing this as a tremendous opportunity um, to expand education options for families. You in Arizona are really in the thick of it, Arizona and Florida lead the nation in school choice policies that then encourage education entrepreneurship. Um, But it doesn't, you know, sort of a chicken or egg thing. You know, you can have states that don't have a lot of uh, good school choice policy at the legislative level, but can encourage and support education entrepreneurs who then can come in and create these options for families. Uh, And I think, you know, we're seeing that. For example, there's a a company, a startup called GetSchoolhouse.com that saw this uh, pandemic pod movement happening. And so they uh, created this company that connects families that want to create these pods, which are these kind of home-based, multi-age, one-room schoolhouse kind of micro-school communities. And then they'll connect those families with a certified teacher. They just raised more than $8 million in startup venture capital funding last year. So there is, you know, I think real momentum, um, and I really encourage anyone who wants to be an education entrepreneur to, to do that now. Now is the moment, and there's a lot of uh, investors who are willing to back these kinds of innovations.
0: And, and, and something I would urge parents who are either currently doing home education, self-education, or looking to do that is... Is, and we've learned this kind of traveling around the country and looking where to settle. And we're originally from Illinois, which on paper is incredible in terms of like it's the Wild West for homeschooling because homeschools are considered the same as Catholic schools. And as of right now, you don't mess with Catholic schools in Illinois and Chicago. But, you know, we moved to South Carolina, which has stricter laws. And now we're in Arizona. I would urge people not just to look at the laws but at the culture, because while the laws were good in Illinois, the culture was not good because you have teachers unions that basically run the state, Uh, Mm -hmm. not just education, but the entire state. And so they try these little things. I remember they would try to get uh, things were passed little local laws where they would get uh, fire inspections for schools that had under 10 students. Well, okay, let's guess at who they're going after. So. The laws are important, but also pay attention to the culture of the state uh, that you're going into because that's important too. And are they going to enforce it? Did they pass the law, but they're not really, no one really cares about it, you know? Um, Last year, well, maybe it was earlier. Well, I guess we're in 2022 now. 2020, maybe at the end, and I think we tweeted back and forth, I kind of had this uh, pessimistic view and we talk, you know, the the Harvard Law professor calling for a ban on homeschooling, presumptive ban on homeschooling, and now with all these people fleeing, I was convinced, and, and we may still see this war, but I, I don't think they're gonna win it, that there is going to be this last gasp from a cornered tiger, the teachers' unions, the the industrial, educational, industrial complex You know, and you see it now, parents being branded as domestic terrorists. You see these types of things. And however, with so many people leaving and with the ineptitude from a messaging and communication standpoint of teachers' unions, et cetera, do you feel that? it's kind of this it's got momentum it's a snowball and now they're going to gasp they're going to try they're going to do things at the federal level but it's past the point of no return this the, the the cat's out of the bag
1: yeah i mean i don't i don't think that the um uh, proponents of homeschooling regulation are going to back down. I, you know, I think yeah. that Elizabeth Bartholet in her Arizona law review piece, she's the Harvard Law School professor who called for the presumptive ban on homeschooling. I mean, she makes it very clear in that law review piece, the plan, which would be to get the federal court system to, um, to essentially outlaw homeschooling at, the, at a national level. Um, and she uses Germany as the model to follow so you know i think that those efforts will certainly continue but i I think i'm more optimistic that it's not going to get very far and i think the the most recent example of this is that you look at the governor's race in virginia Mm. where um insulting parents and parents desired to to, you know have some say in what their children are learning in their local schools um you know completely backfired on the, the democratic candidate um and that you know parents empowerment was the message that ultimately won for the the, uh, the victor. So, you know, I think that that, that certainly sends a signal uh, to politicians and uh, policymakers that, you know, you don't mess with parents because uh, it's a losing battle at the moment.
0: And, they, it, it, and in that race, but overall, they try to brand it as a kind of a lily white suburban parent issue mm-hmm. and racist, but it wasn't, not just in Virginia, but the largest, well, you have the stats, right? The largest group of of homeschooling growth is not white people, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, according to the U.S. Census Bureau data last year, um, the largest growth occurred in uh, Black families. Black homeschoolers had a fivefold increase in 2020 alone, and they're now overrepresented in the homeschool population compared to the representation in the U.S. K-12 public school population. Um, That is on top of separate data from Education Week from last fall, the fall of 20 uh, excuse me, the fall of 2020, uh, that found that the largest Driver in homeschooling at the time was low income families. Um, you know, parents of all socioeconomic statuses want what's best for their children, and they will do whatever it takes to make sure their children have um, the best education possible. We can make it easier for them if we encourage education policy that enables tax dollars to follow students instead of systems. Again, going back to this kind of um, metaphor of government run grocery stores that don't exist, but we do have. Access to taxpayer dollars to help families in need. Um, and I think that, that that, again, that same model uh, can and should work for education. And it, and it frankly has. I mean, this has been a year of school choice, or two years now of school choice, where we've seen um, more than two dozen states introduce or enact legislation that expands school choice policies, encouraging uh, tax credit scholarship programs, education savings accounts, voucher programs, the expansion of charter schools and virtual charter schools that can uh, lead to a lot of education innovation.
0: Well, if anyone listening or watching is considering homeschooling, and I know we've had some some relatives who, well, I would if I could, but I can't. Go grab Carrie's book, Unschooled, because in that, and, and go to fee.org, follow Carrie's uh, articles there, because You provide a lot of options that people may have something in their head about homeschooling Mm -hmm. that it's not. uh, You provide great options there. And your new book, I have to say, is just so wonderful because not just the A for activists, but there's a lot of things that creep in. Oh, my gosh. I mean, we'll go go to a bookstore and you see the COVID propaganda too is like, I don't know if it was called F is for Fauci or something. It's like, oh my gosh. So it was welcome to see A is for abundance. If you have a child who is, what would you say, that Preschool, toddler age, probably best Probably
1: a little later than toddler. I would say, again, kind of the four to eight, four to nine-year-old range is is really the sweet spot for this. And and something that, you know, parents will want to read alongside their children because I think it will prompt a lot of discussions. And that's what I've already heard from readers, uh, you know, who purchased the book. It's available as paperback or through Kindle, um, is that it it prompts discussion. And it, it, um, you know, I think is a way of encouraging family conversations about what creates a free society. And I'll just say one other thing that, you know, I've talked about how the book, in the book, I really try to um, uh, to celebrate entrepreneurs and the mm-hmm. makers and the producers and the creators. And this is back to your point about Atlas Shrugged. Um, you know, we need to celebrate the um, the producers, right? We need to uh, celebrate these brilliant minds and say, well done, um, as again, in Galt's Gulch, um, they These makers and producers are 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 told you know congratulations you 've done good things for society, and I think that that's also something that we see quite a bit now, and part of it again goes back to cronyism where um, you know entrepreneurs or billionaires uh, may have gotten there through unfair advantages and handouts from um, you know local and state officials or contracts with the government and various other um, you know, curry favor. And I think that that leads then people to think that accumulating wealth or being successful or becoming a billionaire Um, are sort of evil things when it's not. Because when we think about the value involved in becoming a billionaire, again, aside from uh, any of the corruption or government entanglements that might exist, it's because, you know, someone, an entrepreneur becomes that successful and that wealthy because they have created so much value um, for their consumers. And that's, again, something to celebrate, something to... um, To find that is remarkable. They've created these incredible jobs. They've created uh, and improved the lives of the people that use their products or services. Um, So I think really giving those accolades to the producers or producers around us, to the entrepreneurs and innovators is so crucial.
0: Yeah. And starting it at a young age with your book is perfect because, you know, I talk about this a lot from age one through seven, our programming starts, our software programming. And you know, we know people who will sit down, and we love Shark Tank because yes, we, we love. Yeah, we lost that too. Yeah, and, and we have relatives who come and they 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 instinctively say, "Those fat cats don't need any more money." And it's like Damon John started in his mom's house, you know, in poverty making T-shirts. I mean, most of these sharks came from nothing and through the power of their ideas built something. But again, like you said, there's 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 apples who either. Got where they are through funding of government, or they're now using their funding government <laughs> themselves. So, yeah, thank you for writing this book because helping to counter—and again, in a free way, it's your choice—but to counter some of the the negative programming entrepreneurs is so important. Where's I got my copy on Amazon? Where's the best place that people can go and grab the book?
1: Yes, he self-published on Amazon, so that is. Um you know, really probably the primary place that awesome. people can go find the book and, uh, and look forward to, you know, more readers and hearing their feedback.
0: Well, Carrie, thanks so much for coming on the Freedom Media Network. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for this book. It's so important. Unschooled, all your work, go to org. Carrie, thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Kurt.